So yes, last week we left Nehemiah in a place where he'd received some news from uh, a man called Hanani. Hanani had come from Jerusalem with some men who had um, uh, been in the captivity. And he gave Nehemiah some news that was pretty bad. He said that the survivors that were there uh, in Jerusalem were in great distress and reproach. And that was primarily because the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and the gates were burned. And then in verse 4, we saw that Nehemiah's response to this was that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for many days. Now, I want you to think about a time in your life, whether it's as a believer or an unbeliever, where you felt broken as a person, where you felt a sense of grief or a sense of disappointment or sadness. And I can bet that if you think about that time and you look back to it, that there was some sort of historical context to that grief, that brokenness, that despair. Whether it was a sin that you committed or someone had sinned against you, there's always a history to our brokenness. And this is exactly the same for Nehemiah. There was a historical context to his brokenness that he's experiencing here in 450 BC. And that context started about 150 years before this time, when the tribe of Judah was in rebellion against God. God was sending prophets to the tribe of Judah. They weren't repenting of their sins. And it got to a point where God said, okay, that's it. Enough is enough. And he gave them over to the Persian Chaldean army to go into exile. And in 586 BC, the Chaldean army ransacked Jerusalem, broke down its walls, and burned its gates. And this was such a terrible thing in the history of Jerusalem that Daniel, in Daniel 9, said that nothing had happened in Jerusalem's history that was as bad as that time in 586 BC. And this physical picture of the walls of Jerusalem being broken down and the gates being burned was a spiritual picture, really, of the fact that God's protection of his people had gone and that he'd given them over to being taken into exile. But of course, God, in his grace and mercy, had a plan to bring them back to Jerusalem. And in 538 BC, King Cyrus gave the decree that the exile should end. And these uh, Jews, the tribe of Judah, went back to Jerusalem. There was about 500,000 of them that went back. And they, they began to rebuild the temple in 516 BC. And then in about the 450s, Ezra went back and started to reestablish spiritual worship in the temple. But the one thing they couldn't do in that 100-year period was rebuild the walls. They couldn't put the wall back together. They tried, but they couldn't do it. And this is what Nehemiah's broken about. This is what he's grieved about. This is what he's mourning about, that although they've gone back to Jerusalem, there's still that physical picture that God's protection of them is not there. So 
the context of our message is this brokenness that Nehemiah has. So what does he do? Well, in verse 4, it says that he prays. He prepares physically to pray by fasting, but then he prays before the God of heaven for days, many days, it says there. Why does he pray? Well, we get a a clue to that in verse 5, where it says there, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now, this gives us an idea about why Nehemiah is praying, because this exact sentence has already been said about 100 years before this by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. I'll just read these first four verses of Daniel 9. It says there, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So in Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel is surveying what's happening to Jerusalem in about 586 BC. And he's heard about the fact that it's been demolished, it's a ghost town, that everyone's had to leave and go into exile. And he's mourning about it. He's grieved about it. And he chooses to pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and David. Why? Because as a godly man, Daniel would have known that these men before him had a relationship with God, but they failed on a number of occasions. And in their failure, what did they do? They prayed to God. And God answered their prayers, and he wanted to hear their prayers in their brokenness. And Daniel believes the same thing. He believes that even though the nation of Israel has failed, or the tribe of Judah has failed, he is going to pray to God because God wants to hear his prayers, and he wants to answer his prayers. And of course, God did. God answered Daniel's prayer here because about 70 years later, King Cyrus gave the decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And of course, Nehemiah would have known about Daniel. And the fact that he says the same thing here, to me, speaks of the fact that he believed the same thing as Daniel. He believed that even though the nation of Israel had failed, that God still wanted to answer his prayer and hear his prayer. And so the focus of our message today is going to be on this prayer of Nehemiah. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see that Nehemiah understood God's character, that he understood God's requirements, and he understood that he could ask God. And he's going to, in that understanding, pray in his brokenness and pray for the brokenness of the tribe of Judah and Israel. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, what has this prayer got to do with me as a 21st century Christian? We don't have walls around Norwich anymore, and there's no walls broken down around Norwich, although you can see them in the town centre. Well, it's got relevance to us for two reasons. Firstly, sooner or later in each of our lives as Christians, we are going to experience brokenness. We are going to experience grief. We are going to experience despair. Why? Well, because Jesus experienced those feelings, those emotions. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 3. This is speaking of Jesus. It says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Jesus experienced sorrow, he experienced grief, and that probably was uh, uh, most accumulated at the cross, but also in the Garden of Gethsemane. And because we have the life of Christ in us, if we're born again, his life is to be our life. So if he experienced these emotions, we shouldn't be surprised when we experience those emotions of brokenness, of despair, of grief. The second reason this prayer's got relevance to us is there may be some of you in here who know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. You may have come to church an utterly broken Christian, completely in despair, you have such a sense of failure, and the devil's lying to you and saying to you, you can't pray to God. That somehow because of your failure and your despair and your brokenness that God has changed and he doesn't want to hear you. What I want to say to you that the Spirit wants to remind you this morning that the God of Nehemiah is the same God today. And he wants to hear your prayers and answer your prayers even in your brokenness, your despair and your grief. So you can see that this prayer of Nehemiah has such relevance for us. There's so much we can learn from this. This is, in a sense, a model prayer for broken Christians. So let's go through those three things together. Firstly, Nehemiah understood God's character. And we see that in verse 5 again, where he says that the Lord God of heaven, who's great and awesome, is one who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and observe his commandments. So this phrase, that God is a God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and observe his commandments, show us that Nehemiah understood God's character. So we need to think about this phrase in a bit more detail. Firstly, this reality that God is a God who keeps his covenant and mercy. Now this word covenant, you see it uh, in the Bible. There's obviously the old covenant and the new covenant. And the covenant was basically or is a contract between two parties about a relationship. It's set up by one party, it's kept by one party, and sometimes there are conditions associated with covenants and sometimes there aren't. And so in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was essentially set up with the nation of Israel, which culminated in uh, God giving the law to them uh, on Mount Sinai. And then in the New Testament, we have the covenant that we enter into through Jesus Christ by faith. But the important thing to remember is it is God who sets up covenants. 
We never set up covenants with God. We can never go to God and say, right, I'm going to relate to you on these terms. No, that's not how it works. God sets up covenants. He's the one that only has the right to do that, and he keeps them. When God makes a promise through a covenant, because he's perfect, he will always keep that promise. His covenant and his mercy, his covenantal love. But who does he keep covenant with? Well, he keeps covenant with those who love him and observe his commandments. Who are they? Who are these people? Well, we have to think about that. Firstly, we need to say that the Bible teaches very clearly that human beings in their nature, their fallen sinful nature, cannot love God. They cannot love one another the way that God views love. We see this very clearly taught in Romans 3, verses 10 to 13, where it says, speaking of the fallen human race, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Loving is good. Therefore, there is no one in their fallen nature that can love God or other people the way God sees it. But the Bible also teaches very clearly that we can only love when we first know God's love for us. We see that very clearly taught in 1 John. I'm just going to read a few verses from there. Firstly, 1 John 4, verses 7 to 10 reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son, into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then in 1 John 4, 16, it says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And then lastly, 1 John 4, 19 says very simply, We love him because he first loved us. What are these verses teaching? Well, very simply, they're saying that God has loved the world. He's loved the world by sending Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, and that Jesus went to the cross for the world. He went to die for the sins of the world, to take the punishment for sin, to take the judgment for sin. And then on the third day, he rose victoriously, defeating sin. These verses teach that we enter into that love and we love God for the first time when we surrender to that provision, when we believe in Jesus Christ by faith. These verses teach that we carry on in that love by abiding in God, abiding in his provision and allowing the Spirit to work in us and grow obedience within us. Now, this is not just a New Testament principle. This is an Old Testament principle as well. You see it very clearly in Abraham's life. You remember in Genesis 15, God gave Abraham a promise. He said, you're going to have a son, and through that son, I'm going to bless the world. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. 
He did a good thing by believing in the Lord. That was when he loved God for the first time, probably. And then he, we see it throughout the whole of his life. He carried on in that promise. And it kind of culminated in Genesis 21, if I remember. I think it's Genesis 21, when God um, called him to sacrifice Isaac. And he went to do it because he believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would resurrect Isaac because he'd promised to bless the world through his son. What do you see there? Abraham submitted to God's provision in his promise, and he carried on in that promise, and he developed obedience in his life through that faith. And so we see that those who love God are those who have accepted his provision for their salvation. They believe it by faith, very simply. They carry on in it by faith, very simply. And the Spirit is working in them to develop obedience. And this is why it's very uh, poignant that it says there that those who love him observe his commandments. And those who truly love God will observe his commandments. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, follow my commands. In Romans 3, it says that by faith, the law will be established in our heart. What law is that? Well, it's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it is loving other people as yourself. It's important to state here that when Nehemiah says, observing your commandments, he's not speaking of a perfect obedience because we can never, listen, perfectly obey the law, even as Christians. We can't do it. Only Jesus could do that. But there should be, within those who truly have submitted and surrendered to his salvation, there should be a growing development of obedience in our lives. So what Nehemiah is essentially saying here is that God keeps covenant and mercy with his truly saved people. With those whom he's called, those whom he's drawn, those whom he's saved, those whom he's keeping, those whom he is persevering on to glory. And the important thing to say here is that that is the case even in the presence of failure and even in the presence of brokenness and despair in the people of God's life. Nehemiah has seen that over the last hundred years. Remember, they, they, the, the tribe of Judah got kicked out of Jerusalem. They were sent into exile. But through the prayers of Daniel... God was gracious and merciful, and he brought them back to Jerusalem. He kept covenant with those who love him and those who observe his commands. And Nehemiah, in saying this, is saying, I believe, God, that you are going to do the same. You're going to keep covenant with these people in Jerusalem. You're going to rebuild the wall. You are a great and awesome God. This is your character, God. You don't fail. You keep your promises that you make to your people. Now, this is such an important gospel principle because every single one of you in here, if you're born again, you will fail as a Christian. You will make mistakes. You will have periods of life when you're broken, when you're in despair. Why? Well, because we're not in glory yet. We don't have our glorified body. We're not with Jesus in heaven and so because of that, we will get things wrong. Now, in me saying that, I'm not saying that Christians can just go out and sin. Because as I've said, those who truly love God 
will have evidence of a growing obedience in their life. But there's just a reality, and I do think some Christians are kept in bondage by this, that you're not going to get things perfect. You're going to get things wrong. But the question is, what does that mean for your relationship with God when you do something wrong as a Christian? Well, if you see that wrong, if you see that brokenness, if you see that despair the way God sees it, then it means absolutely nothing. When God saves you, when you come to faith in him, he doesn't say, right, here you go, you must do everything perfect now, and if you don't do everything perfect, that's it, boom, you're out of here. No, it's not like that. It is a process that takes time, and through success and failure as a Christian, you grow in your relationship with the Lord. You grow towards heaven. You grow towards glory. So are you broken in here this morning as a Christian? Do you have a sense of failure? Do you have a sense of despair? Do you have a sense of grief? You've already seen that God wants to hear your prayer, that he wants to answer your prayer, but he also wants you to know that, listen, if you see things the way he sees it, that your brokenness, your failure, your despair is because of sin, then he will keep covenant with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Don't let the devil lie to you and say that you've been kicked out of heaven, that God doesn't want anything more to do with you. No, that's a lie. God has saved you based upon his character, not upon yours. So Nehemiah understood the character of God. And then as we go on in the next verses, we see that he understood God's requirements. Because he says there in verse 6, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. So in verse 6, Six, what he's doing is he's using a special type of uh, writing called anthropomorphism, where he's putting on God human characteristics. He's saying that God has got ears, God has got eyes. Now, he didn't believe that God had a body because at this point Jesus hadn't come. And God the Father is, spirit, is a spirit. But what he's doing is he's making a point. He's using the organs of sense here, ears, eyes, and he's saying, I want interaction with God. I want you, Lord, to interact with me in what I'm saying. And what does he want interaction on? Well, he wants interaction in a confession of sin. He confesses the sin of the children of Israel. He confesses his sin, his father's house sin. What is he speaking of there? Well, he could be speaking of their rebellion that was present in their nation 150 years before this. But I think what he's speaking of here is something a bit closer to home. And that is that when these Jews, the tribe of Judah, went back to Jerusalem and they started to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, they committed a terrible sin. They began to intermarry with the nations around them, which was strictly forbidden by God's law. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 9, and Ezra chapter 10. And this was such a terrible thing. Think about this. God has just restored this people. 
to Jerusalem, and now they've gone to break his law again by intermarrying with the nations around them. This was such a terrible thing. Listen to what Ezra says in Ezra 9, verse 6. This is when Ezra had to deal with this sin. He says, And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And Nehemiah, in the same spirit here, is just absolutely overcome by the rebellion of the nation. And he sees it not just as individual sin, he sees it as a corporate thing. Because he says, we have sinned, my father's house has sinned. I have sinned against you, even though he wasn't there. But this shows us an interesting thing, and a very sobering thing. And that is that for the redeemed, listen to this, the redeemed, restored people of God, they still have the presence of sin. And they still rebel against God. And this is not just the case for the nation of Israel. You see it in Moses' life. You remember Moses, when he killed that Egyptian soldier? He went out into the desert for 40 years. God called him to go back to Egypt, but he didn't want to go. He didn't want to speak on behalf of God. The redeemed, restored man of God still sinned. You see, in Peter's life, you remember Peter who denied the Lord three times? Jesus restored him, and then in Galatians, you see that Peter was a hypocrite where he wouldn't have fellowship with the Gentiles because the Jews were around. The restored, redeemed person of God still sinned, still rebelled. And that is the same for each one of us in here. I thank God that if you've put your faith in Christ, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ washes away your sin. You may have been restored from some sin in your life that had power over you, but you still wrestle with the presence of sin in your heart. You still wrestle with that sense each day of rebelling against God and not doing what he wants you to do. This is why the New Testament writers constantly exhort us to look to the future. Have an eternal outlook. Look to the glory that's to come. Look to the heaven that's to come where we'll be finally free from the presence of sin. Hallelujah. There will be no more struggle with sin anymore. This is why Paul said, if we have our hope in this life as Christians, we are to be of all people the most pitied. Nehemiah understood this principle as well. He knew that the restored, redeemed people of God still sinned, but he also understood what the requirements of God were in dealing with that. Because he says, doesn't he, in verse 7, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest parts of the heavens, Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What's he doing here? Well, he's very simply repenting on behalf of the nation. He's acknowledging what God is calling them to do in that repentance. And he's putting his faith back in the Lord that the Lord is the one 
who's redeemed the nation. The Lord is the one that has saved them. This is a, a very clear example in the Old Testament of repentance and faith. And you see it throughout the whole of the Old Testament in all the men and women of God. They knew they needed to turn from their sin. They knew they needed to put their faith in the provision of the Lord in the Old Testament and look towards the Messiah to come. But of course, repentance and faith is fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says there, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what Jesus is doing here is he's showing how you enter into relationship with him for the first time. You repent, you turn, essentially, essentially means having a changed mind about something. You turn from your way of life of sin and you turn towards God. You see your sin and your rebellion the way that he sees it and you put your faith in the provision of God in Jesus at the cross. You repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you enter into relationship with the Lord. But this repentance and faith is something that we need to continue to exercise, even as Christians, those who are saved. You see that in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, where Paul said, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, How I kept back nothing that was, was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this reality that we enter into relationship with God through repentance and faith, and we carry on in relationship with God in repentance and faith. Because there is the presence of sin still in our life. We still need to turn from the things that we uh, sin in. We still need to turn to Jesus and his provision at the cross. This is the provision of God for those who are redeemed and those who still sin. It's repentance and faith. That's the nuts and bolts of what it means to walk as a Christian even now in the 21st century. Now, I have to say, in my own personal experience, that I have realized this reality of repentance and faith in the presence of brokenness much more recently. You know, one of the things I think that Christians do when they feel broken or they feel grieved or they feel despaired is that they just seek a very quick answer. They seek a church service or a church pastor or a move of something to just kind of take their problem away and just make it all better, just like that, with a click of a finger. And I've, I've, I know what that feels like, because I, in my own experience as being a believer, have wrestled for a long time with brokenness about relationships. And just that's to do with my past, it's to do with my experience with my parents, but that's had a real impact upon me, and has really affected the way that I relate to God and the way that I relate to other people, even Christians. And I've just wanted the Lord to just take it away. Please, Lord, just take this away from me. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Please, this is so hard. This is so difficult. Why won't you take this away? 
And the Lord always brings me back to this reality of repentance and faith. Because at the root of all of our despair and all of our brokenness, there will be sin. Whether it's our own sin, whether it's we've been sinned against by someone else. And God wants us to learn and grow and walk in this nuts and bolts of the Christian life and turn from that sin on a continual basis and continue to believe in Jesus Christ and see the glory of the gospel even in our brokenness. So I would encourage you today, if you are in that place, if you're broken, if you're in despair, if you feel like a failure as a Christian, if you're grieved, don't seek a quick answer. Obviously the Lord would have you ask for healing or miracles, which we'll come on to in a minute, but don't be surprised if the Lord takes you for a season of repentance and faith. That's the requirement of the Lord in our brokenness. And then lastly, in verse 11, we see that Nehemiah not only understood God's character, he not only understood God's requirements, but he understood that he could ask. It says there in verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, one of the things that I've noticed over the last four years is just how easy it is for children to ask their parents for things. That's something I've really had to learn over the last four years, having four children. And I would say I probably spend about 80% of my time now answering my children's requests. Dad, can I have this? Dad, can we do that? Dad, can we go here? Dad, can I have this suite? Dad, can I do this? All you parents are acting as if your children don't do this, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But it's the most natural thing for a child to ask their parent for something. And in some ways, when they don't ask you for something, that's when there's something wrong. And so Nehemiah here is doing that very thing. He is asking the Lord to intervene on his behalf, and he's asking specifically for prosperous uh, relations and mercy in the sight of the king of Persia, because he was the king's cupbearer. He was the one that would have to taste the wine before it was given to the king. So he had a very close relationship with the king, and he wants to ask, Lord, please grant me favor with this man, because I'm going to ask him for something that he might not grant. And I won't say what that is, because John will go into that next week. But Nehemiah understood this principle, that as a person who knew God, he could ask God for things. And again, this is a very important gospel principle. Because when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, do you know, very simply, that you can ask God? And I think sometimes we underestimate the impact of this. Because listen, the the world out there, those who are not saved, those who don't believe in God, don't submit to Jesus, listen, they can't ask God for things. They can't ask God for things in the same way. Why? Because there is something in between them and God 
that hasn't been dealt with. What is that thing? It is sin. Sin separates people from God. Sin doesn't allow people to communicate with God. And this is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came to deal with that barrier. Jesus came to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world so that for those who believe in him, that barrier can be taken away and you can enter into the very presence of God in his throne room and ask. Do you see that this morning, brothers and sisters? That because of Jesus, you in relationship with the creator of the universe can ask him for anything. doesn't mean that he's going to give it to you, but you have the ability to ask. You have that grace. You have that mercy to go to him. So ask for the things that you need in your brokenness, in your despair, and in your grief. Ask for that miracle. Ask for that breakthrough. Ask for that change that you've been praying about for a long time. Ask for that relative that is not saved to be saved because God hears that. He delights in you asking him as a good heavenly father. Jesus spoke of this, didn't he, when he said in the Gospels, ask, seek, and knock. And if you do that, God will respond. He will interact with you simply asking him. And if it's in accordance with his will, he will grant it. Do you find it difficult to ask God for things in this place this morning? Do you find that you feel hard towards the Lord and that you feel that you just can't go to him? Well, could it be that you don't understand the gospel? That the gospel to you is based upon your own terms? That it's about you doing things and it's not primarily about him having already done everything for you on the cross? The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God to save for everyone who believes. Not the power of man to save, the power of God to save. So therefore, brother, sister, don't neglect this great truth that you can simply go to the Lord as your father and ask him. So we've seen today brothers and sisters, that Nehemiah was a broken man. But what did he do in his brokenness? He prayed. And in his prayer, he prayed through his understanding of God's character. He prayed through the requirements of God. And he prayed through the reality that he could ask God for things. And I want to leave you today just to encourage you to take heed to this prayer. Listen to its words and learn from it. And go back to it when you feel those feelings of brokenness and despair because Jesus will be there ready to hear that prayer. Let's pray.